Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Howard Greenberg. And Howard, you are a... Now, what's your official title? Professor, associate professor? What's your... I know we love our titles. We don't have titles. We don't have titles. We don't have tenure. And I'm just the chair of the program, which I think in the case of our MFA program is a little different than other program chairs uh, or program chairs at other institutions where, you know, the chair rotates among faculty. Mine is my involvement as chair is more intricate and organizational. (laughs) So, you know, I can't tell you when I became chair, but it's been over 10 years. So yeah, well, give me a little bit of background. Let's go back a step. So, like, I when I was in school, I remember the venerated, like, the amazing main photographic workshops, and they have now evolved into a college and an MFA program and all this other stuff. So, give me a little bit of background on sort of what has evolved over the past, well, twenty five years. Well, the workshops actually, you know, started in nineteen seventy three. I think I have that right. As an institution, we're almost 50 years old. But it was started as a for-profit school, primarily focused on you know, training for the professions of photography first, and then filmmaking was added. I think the previous owner of the school, because it was a sole proprietorship, was approached by the University of Maine, and I can't tell you when this was, to teach the art or photographic and filmmaking courses for an associate's degree program. So it was really under the University of Maine's auspices that their students were taking classes in photography and filmmaking, and they were attending classes in you know, general studies at the, at the university. So. And then the, the former owner thought, well, you know, we could do this ourselves, right? And, and it was interesting because they developed general studies classes that were related to art practices. You know, I was teaching in that program when it existed, and I taught aesthetics class. And it was analytical aesthetics, so it was philosophy, right? So mm-hmm. it was a general studies thing, but it was focused on the interests of of the students. The MFA program then started in 1996. The first students were admitted in 1996. And so we had to develop a a name for the college because our identity up until that point had been as a workshops center. So Rockport College was born, and that's what it was called for some years until... Uh, there were some financial struggles, and a board of directors formed a nonprofit and took over the governance of the school. And that was in 2007. Then in 2018, we changed the name to Maine Media College. Right. Okay, good. I thought I was horribly out of touch by not recognizing that name. I was like, I swear it was called Maine Photographic Workshop for a really long time. It it was. And so what we've done is we've changed it so that we're Maine Media College doing business as Maine Media Workshops and College, right? So the workshops are still, have still been the primary revenue stream for the school, but we've developed you know, other programs. We've expanded beyond photography and filmmaking. We have a writing program. We have book arts center. So programs have have expanded substantially. And you've been the chair of this for how long? I think I've been chair at least 10 years, maybe maybe 12 years, something like that. Perhaps more. And that's through the changes. So you were there from for-profit to non-profit to workshops to college. So you've been part of this whole transition. I've been here since 2000. Okay. 
So, yeah. yeah. My wife is the provost of the school. And she's also faculty in the MFA program. Her name is Elizabeth. And when we were first married, we were living in Pennsylvania. I mean, she moved from Manhattan to Pennsylvania, where I was living. So we shared a studio space. And, and she agreed to do this on the condition that in the summer, she could come up to teach workshops here. And seemed like a pretty good arrangement to me. She's been affiliated with the school for 30 years. The first summer after we were married, that she came up to teach workshops, she was offered a job. So I thought it was a great opportunity for her. And I was, you know, burning the candle at all ends where I was. And it just felt like the right thing to do. So I, I came up then after we were married in 2000. So the MFA program, the first students were mid admitted in 96. My involvement began in 2000 as faculty. Then it, then it was some years later that I became chair of the program. So how big is the program these days? How many students and all that? It's still relatively small. And we intend to grow a little bit, but not not so much. Right now, there's, there's 26 students. I graduated from a school with only, like my undergraduate only had four people in my photography <laughs> program. In right. my graduate program, I think I only graduated with 10 other students in right. my discipline. So I'm all for small education. Yeah, it, there's about 26 students, currently eight core faculty. We developed a category of faculty called continuing faculty. So those are recurring guests. And we have guest faculty we bring in to really, you know, shake things up. I was about to ask that. I'm like, so how do you find your faculty if they're sort of visiting part-time-y kind of thing? A lot of the faculty who are recurring faculty have taught workshops, right? So the, the that's a rather extensive program. There might be 200 faculty during the workshop season. And then a lot of it is word of mouth. Somebody knows somebody. Like uh, One of our current MFA students, when she entered the program, was shifting from a, a journalist or journalism background, a photojournalism background, to social practice art. I mean, that's the direction she wanted to go. So my wife and I knew somebody who is an authority in that field, if you would call it a field. So we we brought him in, and he's been mentoring the student. Yeah, I read that there was you. So you were talking about like mentor, mentor focused or mentors, mentor based, mentor, yeah, mentor based. There you go. So like, give us a little bit of like a, a you know that's a bit unique. Um, that's not sort of the norm in America. Of course, in Europe, the idea yeah. of sort of mentor apprentice is still very strong tradition. But how do you all sort of do the, the mentor-based process? It's a kind of deep engagement with, with the student. It, it's conversational because this, you know, at the master's level, we're, we're not talking about things that are instructional per se. It's more a matter of exploring, trying to create an environment for the student where their work, uh, where they can examine their work deeply and expansively. So it's, it's a considerable um, amount of work. And if, if you, I think if you're effective as a mentor, you, you have to have a, a, a great deal of patience because it's much easier to tell a student what to do and then they're successful <laughs> because they do what you do than it is to sit and listen and wait and nudge and try to get them to come to their own understandings. That said, it's ritually rewarding when they do for everybody. If they do. They typically do. That's why ours is like a three-year program. And the mentors interact with, with their mentees every two weeks for at least an hour. And our semesters are, are long. They're not 15-week semesters. The semesters begin, officially begin 30 days after a, a retreat, which 
a misnomer for sure, but that's when we all get together on campus, typically, were it not for COVID, right? And then the semester ends at the following retreat. So there's they're essentially five months long, the semesters. And if a student has been working with a particular mentor over the course of several semesters, they just keep going. You know, there is no break in that interaction. So we have a three-year window of time, and we have fairly consistent interaction between the mentors and, and students, which improves the chances that they'll that they'll come to a practice that's recognizably authentic to them. Sure. I mean, I went to different schools and have now lived in Europe and the Middle East and stuff, but like one of my schools was very much of a sort of this mentor apprentice kind of a feel, which was the, the teachers, like you sort of chose a teacher and sort of took more of their classes than let's say anybody else's. And then I ended up going to another school, uh, the San Francisco Art Institute. And at San Francisco, they actively told us, do not work like us. Yeah. We are just here as teachers. You do your own thing. We're just here to guide you and do not like, we were not allowed to take, uh, you know, too many courses with the same professor. They really did not want us to follow in their footsteps kind of a thing. So like, right. so it sounds like you've got sort of like, like a nice balance of that, like a little bit of mentoring, but maybe not too much like direct mentor apprentice kind of feel. It's not mentor apprentice. It's probably closer to uh, talk therapy in nature, you know, where you reflect back what the student's telling you or, what you're seeing in the work and allowing them to come to the, an understanding about their work such that they can make their own, they set their own goals and develop their practices in ways that are sustainable beyond the, the program. And in another way that we're different is students develop their own goals and objectives for projects with their, with their mentors and, and advisor. Every student has a an advisor's like a guidance counselor kind of and you you know the advisor would help the the students select appropriate mentors an advisor would help students in constructing projects or matching the goals their their individual goals with the standards of the program what happens if like a student comes in and says, I want to be mentored by this person and this per the, this per particular teacher says, no, I don't want to mentor that student. <laughs> it's happened not too frequently, but we will find it. We'll find a substitute. <laughs> I mean, it's tough because well, when I was applying for MFA programs, the advice that was always told to me was go to an MFA program, not because of the reputation of the program, but because there's a particular person you want to learn from. Right. So, right. The, so the idea of being able to choose somebody well, saying like, this is the person I want to yeah. learn from. Right. For the first semester, we assign an academic mentor and recommend a studio mentor, a studio project mentor, just for the first semester. Okay. When you're thinking about that, like, do you, so the, I really want to get into like the nuts and the bolts of the academic process here. So like, do you try and find teachers that are like, are similar to them of the students or sort of the, a, a complementary or even an opposing style to them to try and push them more? So, well, since this is a, a, a this is only for the first semester, we try to find, well, for, first of all, we choose somebody who's going to be there at the at the retreat the following semester most likely right in some instances the best person that uh, the faculty you know decides as a group for this person is not on the core faculty just because the characteristics of a student's interests work and and their interests are aligned with that in, individual just doesn't happen to be on the core faculty we might bring them in but more often than not, it's somebody who's going to be there so they can advocate for the student. And they're familiar, most familiar with the purposes of the projects and the outcomes that we're looking for. 
Okay, wait, one last little question, because again, I, I, I'm still trying to get past the idea of Maine Photographic Workshop and think of it as a college. Right. Uh, are the students actually living there? No, it's a low residency program. So we get together, they're in residence during these retreats, which are about a week long. At the retreats, there are critiques and group discussions, individual discussions with faculty, guest faculty make presentations, those kinds of things. Then the students have 30 days from the end of the retreat. Well, actually it's shorter now because of student loan requirements, but reasonably it's in that realm to propose their projects for the next semester. What are the goal? What are you gonna do? What are the goals? What are the objectives? Who's the mentor? And, and, and these things are usually worked out with the mentor ahead of time. And then the advisor uh, has to approve the proposal. I have to pr approve the proposal. And students work from where they are. Most often they share their work with their mentors digitally, Dropbox, YouTube, you know, you know, a variety of platforms. And then they talk every two weeks. Some, some talk once a week. So it's a very interactive, conversational method of, it's not really teaching, it's, it's mentoring. That's why I said it's more like, more akin to talk therapy in that you would hope that this, you're, you're not creating a mini me, you know, of the student. You're, you're just reflecting back and, and trying to support it. It sounds like it's pretty similar to what I think of as Bard, isn't it? Bard that does the sort of type of like long distance meeting every now and then kind of stuff. There are many what they call low residency programs or distance learning. Low low residency, there is residency period. So it's not like online. <laughs> but a lot of the appeal to this kind of program is for people who you know, can't, you know, give up whatever they're doing. They have responsibilities, either, you know, financial, familial responsibilities. They can't just up and leave for a couple of years. And yeah, well, like what's the age range? I mean, so are these your stereotypical younger no. MFA students or are no. these more, more adult learners? More adult learners who, I, I think the average age is about 50. And many of them have had uh, successful careers in professions, have been, have been working on their art practices sort of on the side for many years and you know, now have the ability to you know, focus on something that's more meaningful as they transition to another point in their lives. Other students have been professional, professional photographers, filmmakers, videographers, right, in, you know, commercial areas and, and want to explore, you know, meaning in the arts. And recently, we've begun to, to have an influx, uh, to experience a, an influx of younger students. I mean, I say influx, there are a few because it's small, but it feels like an influx influx that's really exciting because it's a different kind of energy they bring and and the it, it necessarily changes some of the qualities of of exchange uh, among the students and i think it makes the program more vibrant so typically a, an older student but you know it's evolving what about the nature of analog versus digital? Are you, because man, you all are known as the photographic place. Yeah. Like, I mean, so like, I assume you probably have strong resources and equipment for both still. Yeah, we, we do. We've, we've maintained wet dark room. One of our resident faculty's chair of the photography certificate program is we offer certificate programs is an expert in alternative processes. So we still have those labs. If you can't come, you can do them online. And people are doing these things online now. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Out of necessity, we, we've been on, we've been online because of, of COVID and 
the class has been going great. I was going to say, so like, how is that working for you? So like, so you're, you're running your university classes that way. And, and also I assume some workshops. Are also All being the workshops, out. everything. We have the certificate programs that we had, you know, put online. That would, that's a, that's a, those are one year in residence program, 30 weeks, put them online. We retained a hundred percent of the students Okay, wait, hold on. When you say put online, I'm putting that in air quotes kind of yeah. thing. Like, uh, you don't mean like YouTube or just like pre prepared videos. You mean you're no, doing. No, Zoom, Zoom. Just okay. as, as, as the classroom is virtual. I mean, the same kind of thing, only it's virtual. Yeah. You know, all, all, the, all the responses have, have been great. I mean, there have been some who've decided not to participate online, but the the vast majority of them have, and they've been really happy with the results and the evaluations we're getting from the students have been really positive. It's made it possible for more people to participate. You know, they don't have to travel to Maine and because there's Zoom and we realized that, you know, you can't sit on Zoom for like six or eight hours a day. So administrators have changed the structures. So they might meet for two hours and then a break and then two hours or every, you know, twice a week instead of every day for a week, they'll meet twice a week for, you know, longer stretch. So how do you do like the stuff where there's light sensitive material with a zoom tutorial? <laughs> Cause like I, I'm, I'm picturing like a laptop going in the dark room or something like this. Like I'm really not the one to ask about that because um, <laughs> I'm not even a photographer, but I, I know I know they're teaching a broad spectrum of classes. I know for the filmmaking certificate program, we sent packets of equipment to the students. Nice. Right? It would be equipment that they would be have access to here on campus. So sent them the, the equipment and worked it out that way. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't I don't know what happens in a dark room. You know, obviously you don't take you, you might not take a uh, live screen in with you, but yeah, no, that wouldn't work. No, not at all. Yeah. Okay. One of my biggest pet peeves about academia art, art academia these days is that we all do an excellent job of teaching skills, craftsmanship, um, analytical thought, you know, philosophical thought, all that kind of stuff. We're good at that. We've been doing that for centuries. Where I feel like I feel like I'm letting my students down, and I feel like a lot of other schools are letting their students down, is they're not teaching enough about the business of right. being a creative person, be it contract law or you know, I mean, just like all the different stuff, uh, the the uh, you know how to invest, how in equipment, how to write, make the right choices of studios you know size of studios whether to create a you know storefronty studio or a warehouse studio like i mean just like all of the different like business of right. so like do, do you do anything yes. with that in your program yes we do we have courses in what we call professional development and you know these these are are prominent concerns for photographers and filmmakers. You know the legalities are much different than, the, or the concerns are, are in those areas are much different than they would be for other artists. So there there are these the the copyright law that you you mentioned, how to set up a business, how to approach you know galleries, all all those things. Yes. So you, you do help with that because my schools were not as strong when I was a student. Of course, that was you know decades ago at this point. But mine weren't either. But yeah, it, well, it, you know the exigencies of photo-based industries require some you know knowledge of that. Plus, students are interested, and we've never been like an ivory tower type of institution hence you know the no titles the uh, no tenure nothing nothing fancy and you know earlier on it was problematic for the mfa program because i think our our peer or people at our peer institutions looked down on us because we emerged from this workshop environment which they saw as and 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 a for-profit school which they 
saw as highly problematic. But we were all, uh, because we were already outside these norms of academic structure and policy, we could adapt to circumstances in ways that, that benefited students. And I mean, we continue to do that. At this point, we've been hearing from other schools and even the accreditors like, you've managed to, to, to do this. How, how are you doing it? And we, of course, we did it because we had to do it. We didn't have huge endowments. Right now, we might say we're not encumbered by you know, all the money, you know, all the things we bought with, with that money. And what may have seen, been seen as an odd amalgam of you know, academic activities before or uh, you know, sort of wild combinations <laughs> have proven to be effective. For instance, we still permit students to take, in the MFA program for graduate credit, up to nine workshops in the, in the workshops program. Now they have to be you know, master's level workshops, which means they're, they're typically not skill-based, you know, they're at a higher level, more conceptual and, well, I, th- I think more conceptual would, would, would cover it. <laughs> it's, it's a close enough word. In a broad way of interpreting conceptual. And, and that also gives students access to different, a di- you know, different group of peers. Yeah. Okay, wait, wait. Take it back a step. So you're saying that if, you're, if there's a student taking the MFA program, so instead of taking courses that are, let's say, part of the core curriculum, they have the option of taking workshops in lieu of a course or as a replacement for a course. Right. Nice. We don't offer many courses. We, we, have, we, we offer what we call intensives in the, in the MFA program, which are one week, you know, Monday through Friday, all day long introductions to academic subjects of common concern to media artists, film history, photo history, aesthetics, professional development, documentary studies, design. And these are not comprehensive classes. They're meant to be introductory and conceptual, right? That if a student wants to pursue anything further, this is where they're going to discover that. But those are the courses that we offer. The rest, the rest is all mentored projects that students and their mentors propose. This sounds like a very, very self-driven school. Like it is. This is. Yeah. This is not a school where you're hand-holding the students and pushing them through a curriculum and all that. Not, you're hand-holding them, but you're deeply engaged with them, but you're not forcing a, a particular curriculum down down their throats. And here's the, the, the problem, because we, we want to ensure that it remains an individualized program. That, that, you know, our purpose is to help students develop authentic and sustainable practices. But, you know, from an outside perspective, that might seem, from an outside academic perspective, it might seem loosey-goosey. You know, like, what does, what does a, a, a main Media College MFA graduate look like? Well, they look like themselves. <laughs> what, what does that mean? Right? So it's trying to balance... I mean, they do, they do share characteristics, right? They do have things in common, but they're not those apparent things. Like increasingly students' work is diverse. You know, we've got, we've got students doing social practice art, installation, performance, as well as, you know, more traditional photography and, and filmmaking. Well, I mean, there's the old saying of like, you know, 95% of people who graduate with MFA stop producing within five years of graduating. Like, does it, it seems like your kind of an education would have a less. Yes. You've hit the nail on the head. Actually, that's something that, you know, we, we are pleased about because authentic and sustainable, we want them to be able to develop artistic practices that 
they can run independently. And it means that, that they, they have to develop their goals, not just for their art, but how they're going to engage with the world, you know, artistically. Some, you know, the, you know, the gallery scene is, is great for some people, but for, for others, it's teaching or, or, or some other expression of their creativity in the world. And we do surveys. And let me see, we've had 50, 53 graduates of the program. Students at, at a remarkably high rate stay involved with their practices. And many, many, many are successful, have national and international attention. Some of our, our current students do. Are you accredited? No, we're, in the pro- we're pursuing accreditation. It's an eight-year process. Oh, I know. I, I I was at a university when we went through the accreditation process, and I stayed until maybe a semester before they got it. After I left, but right. it is it is a bear of a process it, to it, get accredited. It, it's a it's a huge process that we're committed to, and we're over five years in. So it's a three phase process. We we're through the second phase. Who are you going with? We did NASAD. NECHI, which used to be NEASC, the regional accreditors. They're all just as, I mean, it's, I get it and it, it, I understand the need for it. I'm, I'm, you know, all for some sort of standardization of the education process, but oh my God, the amount of paperwork. When we public, we did our final report, it was nearly 10 inches tall of yeah. just printed paper that we had to give them. And it was ridiculous. Our accreditors require that we limit the actual self-study document to a hundred pages, but then, then you have supporting documents. And I think we had about 600 pages of supporting. Yeah. The appendixes. Yeah. The appendices. So yeah, it's a lot of work. Mostly Elizabeth and I have been, well, that, that's not true. There, there, there are other, other people on staff who, and faculty who have been involved in specific aspects like finance and right but you know when it comes down to the actual writing of it a great majority of that is done at our kitchen table so that we have grooves worn into the table oh yeah what has to have a consistent voice in the end you can't just pass it off to random people so yeah no uh, you know absolutely and elizabeth has uh a great ability to retain data. So <laughs> she, she's like an encyclopedia. Just ask her first. No need to, you know, search your your desktop for it. So. It's excellent to have one of those in the family. Yeah. Yeah. So a sidestep, a question that because we're talking about accreditation, it sort of dawned on me like I, my part of accreditation was primarily health and safety. Nice. <laughs> <sighs> It would be nice if everybody, if they funded it well, and if they actually did it. It's a, such a long story. It was in well, the no, United. <laughs> it was in the United Arab Emirates, and and uh-huh. we were trying to meet United States accreditation. So like it was just ridiculous. But so like, do you all do all of the the tr- the, the strong OSHA related, I guess, yeah, health yeah, and safety it. stuff? But you yeah, all you always have though for the workshops too. Right, right. Well, I mean, we're st- we still have you know the wet dark rooms and you know the associated chemicals and the disposal thereof. So yeah, you you would have to do that. And there's also you, you know access issues pertinent to Disabilities Act and all kinds of safety concerns. And they're all, I mean, not to downplay them, but they're all quite expensive to not only install but maintain. Yeah. And that's something a lot of people don't get about like schools. Like there are regulations and rules that are federally mandated that are quite expensive and time right. consuming to, to either install and or maintain to make sure they continue to function well. Sure. Well, and, you know, since we're talking about accreditation, there are administrative salaries that are involved. You know, the more, the more, the more closely involved with the government you, you get, the the, the more expensive it gets. Student loans, federally backed student loans, uh, enable you know more students to participate. Well, okay, wait. So like, so, so it to 
if somebody wants to enroll in your school, they can, they are eligible to get student federally done yeah. student loans. As of you know, when we attained that candidacy status, we were eligible for that. That's lovely. Yeah. And now, are, do you have uh, in your region? Like, do you have uh, teachers' unions and all that kind of stuff? Well, I imagine we 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 might. We don't participate. We're <laughs> Matthew. I mean, we're just. We're just You're too small. Here. They haven't noticed you yet. That's all. It's wait till you get bigger, then they'll start noticing you. You know, it would be interesting to uh, to investigate. You know what's going on. You know, with regard to COVID and, and and the unions, because you know some teachers are being asked to do things that they weren't initially hired to do, yeah, and were not in their contract. Or, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, indeed. Okay, so something I totally forgot to ask, which I generally ask all my guests, is uh, sort of how did you even get to this? So, like, what was your upbringing? Like, what, were your parents creative? Did you have teachers? Like, how did you get to a being a creative person and then b being a teacher? When I was um, a kid, I went to public school. Me too. And up in up until the middle of my sophomore year in high school. I, I had a particularly, you know, unflattering opinion of teachers. <laughs> Most of the time, I, I, I saw that uh, the teacher's role was to maintain order in the classroom, and you know, and that was their focus. And you know, if that's all they accomplished, they were satisfied. <laughs> you know, when they did accomplish it. But as far as learning anything goes, it wasn't happening. And there was also a, a, a brutality about the public school experience that I had. That Where was that? In Pennsylvania. Okay. I wasn't particularly equipped for, you know, being the sensitive kid that I was. I was smart enough to do well. But you know, there was certainly, uh, you know, nothing about that experience that encouraged me to learn. In fact, I was probably traumatized uh, uh, enough that, you know, it Im adversely impacted learning. And then my parents transferred me to a private school. And I suddenly became very interested in learning. And I had Some teachers, I'm emotional because a teacher of mine just passed away. Oh, I'm sorry. I had teachers who, who modeled the profession differently and changed my life. I graduated from high school, the uh, class valedictorian. You know, so my parents, you know, thought, well, you know, you should be a doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> stable made a lot of money yes yeah it might be partially cultural too so and i thought yeah well like okay sure but i had also you know always been like the art kid and i thought initially that it, it would be okay and that i could do both you know <laughs> and uh, you know undergraduate at first i went to georgetown and you know thinking i was going to be a, a you know a lawyer I, I went to the Corcoran, actually. I know D.C. very well. Yeah. I grew up in Arlington. There you go. Love Georgetown. Right. Some great school. I left because, uh, I well, I went to the uh, chair of the art department and I asked, next semester, can I take some art classes? And he said, are you an art major? And I said, no. And I was in, they, they had an honors English program. That's what I was in. And he said, well, if you're not uh, an art major, you can't expect to have an art class till like, at, you know, at the very earliest of your junior year. That sounds about right at a university. Yes. You know, after, after a lot of gnashing of, of teeth with my parents who, you know, like had issues of their own by that time, it was okay that I'd go to art school. So I, I went to Tyler for a while. And until I was in a car accident and broke my hand. And, you know, it was like the, the semester started on Monday. On Thursday, I broke my hand. And 
the dean told me, withdraw. <laughs> so, so then I, I went to Florida where my mother was living to recover and found a school that was sort of like what at least the MFA program at Maine Media has, has become. And in fact, probably in no small part because of my, my influence. So you wrote a contract with your advisor, what you were going to do. They had courses, but you could also say, I'll, you know, apart from my courses, I'll do this. What school was this? It's called New College. Again, there I, you know, I had, you know, just incredible teachers who impacted me on, on a number of levels as role models for in, engaging with learning and work, but also with, with other people ethically and spiritually. I finished my, my undergraduate career and I had several, you know, in air quotes, <laughs> art jobs, one of which was working for um, someone who he would sand down the face of a rock and do calligraphy on the rocks like Jesus is Lord and airbrush a, a, a dove or a, a cross and then polyurethane it and put it on an easel, a little stand. And he advertised that he wanted somebody with, he was looking for help, somebody with an art background. So I got the job thinking, you know, I'd be designing the stencils, you know, that's, I was sanding down the rocks. <laughs> Absolutely. The... Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't, that wasn't much fun. And these weren't the uh, art jobs I aspired to. And about that time, my father contacted me and said, you know, I, I need you in the business, family business. And so I, you know, flew home and started working in business and for a long time, wasn't really making art. And then I started making art again. And I got, I was very fortunate that, you know, I got some recognition and I was asked to teach be because of that, you know, recognition that I had received. And I was teaching at Lafayette College, you know, adjunct at the same time I'm doing the family business at the same time I'm you know, doing my, my own artwork and exhibiting it. But I fell, I fell in love with teaching. And over, over the years, I've become more passionate about the teaching. And I, and I also, you know, think back to those, those teachers I had at the private high school that were so impactful. I didn't realize the extent to which they altered the course of my life. I think ultimately in a very, po in a very positive way. I, I, I mean, you know, may, maybe ha had I become a lawyer by, you know, some objective measures of success, it would have been a terrible decision not to be a lawyer. But, but that's not really what matters to me. I'm really, you know, blessed that I'm, you know, I'm fine. What really matters to me, my relationships with, with people. Are, are so meaningful that I'm, I'm encouraged and I'm like reminded so frequently of, of those teachers that, that I had that, who were so inspirational and want to be like them. Okay, I've got a question along that because like, I remember the last time I applied for teaching jobs, they always asked like, what's your teaching philosophy? So, like, I'm so I'm asking sort of both your teaching philosophy and also sort of in the grander scheme, sort of the the MFA program's teaching right. philosophy, because like I always went to Socratic method kind right. of thing, pompous <laughs> yeah. and all that. Yeah. Yes. The dialect. The dialectics. Yeah. <laughs> I've got nothing so hard boiled. It's more like I see myself as uh, providing a service. <laughs> you know, and, and a listener and, uh, you know, an interpreter and a reframer, <laughs> you know, because what I do is not, you know, it's not really instructional. 
my teaching method is, you know, to listen, reflect back, try to frame things in art world contexts, try to support a student's, you know, awareness of what they're doing and what they're, the choices they seem to be making are. And is this the same for everybody in the program? Like, do you, so like, do you choose teachers who have that same philosophy or do you ha try to have a mix of different teachers that teach in different philosophies and different techniques? I think we have some differences, but for the most part, I think everybody's sort of gravitated around, around these attitudes, if not principles or probably more. What do they call? Don't they call it like dogma or something? Like that? Well, yeah, pedagogy and pedagogy. Dogma. That's the word. Yeah, yeah, that right, pedagogy. Right. I hate that word. Yeah, at the at the the place where I went to uh, graduate school, they called it pedagogy. Uh huh. <laughs> pedagogy, but we don't talk about those things in the, in those terms and very often. It sounds fabulous to not talk about those things. <laughs> yeah. it's like, I mean, like, <laughs> you know, my career as a teacher, the the bane of my existence was always those pedagogical meetings, and then of course just meetings and committees and these yeah. kinds of things that sound like you have less of than your standard school. Yeah, we do, and I don't know the as far as the core faculty goes. I think the the individual who's newest to the faculty has been on the faculty for i think eight years maybe six six to eight years and and you know so many of these people i've been working with for you know close to 20 years and while we have formal meetings and we do ha have committees most of business is done you know call them up you know, here's what I'm thinking. What do you think about what I'm thinking? Maybe we should talk to so-and-so. And, Don't uh, tell the accreditors this. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll have a meeting about it to put, you know, to, to you know, minutes, put the, the cherry yeah. on. Yeah, I but so, so we can record when exactly, you know, something was put into effect. But, you know, all of the, the conversations, what gets on those meeting agendas have has already likely been pretty thoroughly discussed oh, yeah. behind the scenes. Yeah. yeah. And that's the same as every other committee. We always discuss outside of committee in smaller groups where we can tell our true opinions right. before walking into the actual meeting where right. things get on the record. Right. Exactly. There you go. But it is collegial environment for, for the most part. So I, I think everybody, everybody's been pleased with the trajectory of student work and the the diversification thereof and just the caliber of student work and effort and stuff so yes i have a grid that brought up a great question that I, I hear about so when people apply so let's picture there's a student or a potential student mm -hmm. listening to this podcast mm -hmm. how should they structure their application I don't even know what your application sort of in mandates or anything, but like, but so like, is it a portfolio? Is there any writing? Is there an interview? How does it go? They usually uh, are referred to me and I actually will typically work with an individual to develop their applications. So I've, you know, interviewed them. I may ask them to speak to another faculty member as well. Before I started doing this, you know, we would ask for documentation of, of work. So say we, we have a rule of thumb, you know, uh, 20 to 24 images for photographers. You know, and photographers would send us, or applicants in photography would send us, you know, here are my two still lifes, here are two uh, portraits, here are, here's some, a documentary project. I've got, you know, a bunch of different things. And the committee would look at this stuff and say, well, who is this person? Uh, you know, what really matters to them? You know, how do we know if we can help them uh, if we don't really know what their interests are? So uh, I would work with, with students to, to, well, actually, 
beginning the mentoring process at that moment where like, so tell me about you. So tell me what, what it is that really, you know, you find exhilarating or you, you are committed to in, in why are you doing this? Okay. So, but let's, let's picture this though. So like, let's take, what would be your ideal sort of application? So like if, if somebody came in with a, the perfect application for you, so it would be 20 to 24 images of a cohesive series of work, you know, all this plus what? So, I mean, cause to a certain extent, almost any photographer could create a cohesive body of work. But the question is what makes somebody that much more special? A unique perspective or what somebody might call a voice. So they, they also write an essay. And if they can cogently describe the content of their, their work, this is not to say that it you know, has to be uh, uh, contextualized in you, you know, art language necessarily but because that you know maybe that's something that we'd engage with i was gonna say that would leave you nothing to teach them yeah that's you, exactly there has to be some foundation to build on that right there you go so if if we see in the essay and in the work you know this alignment of purpose and expression or voice that's pretty ideal and we're we're not really concerned with educational background in you know like we we don't require that they have so many credits in in art and art history and that kind of thing. It's something that you know we continue to discuss because you know without that background it, it's hard for them to engage at least immediately at MFA level you know in conversation at MFA level. But on the other hand, if they've had rich, you know, histories as individuals and they can bring those experiences to the MFA program, it enhances, well, things just aren't so insular. You, you, you know, I, I would imagine, uh, I haven't had involvement in a program where everybody comes from a BFA background. But I would imagine if that were the case, we keep hearing the same things and seeing the same things. And Well, that's like a lot of times they say, like, don't go to the same school for your BFA that you do your MFA because right. like, you want to have a richer experiences, broader education, this kind of stuff that you're, you won't get if you are basically getting it from the same teachers and then the yeah. same location and the same experience, all that. Right. Well, this this is even more so. So, you know, it's great if we have psychologists and people who have been professors in other fields. And it broadens the connections that people are making between art and other areas of thought and practice. And I think it makes for a richer environment, more creative, or at least the possibilities are there. I mean, it is something that we you know, continue to, to, to weigh out the, the pros and cons, because as I said, people without a background, if you start talking, you, you know, postmodern theory, you just descended from another planet. <laughs> I would imagine it, it would, the beginning would be a bit tough with the yeah. randomness and the arbitrary sort of backgrounds and uh, experiences of these people to try and come together quickly. Yeah. So again, it's a three-year program with a lot of individual attention, and it is something that we continue to build. You know, recognize where we're successful, where we might have weaknesses, how we're going to address those kinds of things. But we also have, you know, that you know, many of them are are older. I, I think they're 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 looking they're looking for new meaning in their lives, right? They're transitioning out of roles as, well, professionals and providers for their families and things to, you know, who am I, <laughs> you know, on, you know, you know, a, a deeper level. 
And, and so there's this inherent commitment. I mean, I, I, I'm amazed because, you know, very often the students, you know, you, you ask for something that you think is, you know, reasonable and, and, and you get so much more, you, you know, you say, show me this and you get a, you know, a dissertation. <laughs> well, and which, which you might not get from a 20, 25 year old MFA student because they're preoccupied with other things, you know, exactly. a, lot them, but, you know a lot of them are working full-time jobs to be able to be in school. Yep. And just, you know, by virtue of, of, of their youthfulness, you're, you're going likely to have a different experience with them. But, you know, now that, you know, an increasing number of younger people are coming into the, to the program. I think the, the, the interaction, it's interesting to watch because their experiences are, are, are so different. The perspectives on what, what they're making are, are different. And, and it's not the case that one's superior to, to another, right? Just because, you're older, and often it's it's helpful anyway to hear, you know, different perspectives. So it, it's just it's just makes it more dynamic. People have expectations; they want to, you know, be, be they want their beliefs, uh, they want affirmation about their beliefs, and that that you know that kind of model is 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 limited as much as people want to be told, you know, they're doing, you know, good work, <laughs> A, it's, it's much more interesting to have a conversation that, a consuming conversation about all these. My most memorable critique out of eight years of higher education was when my teacher walked in, he looked at my work and he goes, I really like this work but that's not what we're here to talk about. Yeah. And then he just ripped me a new one for like two hours. Just yeah. told me everything that I did wrong with it. That was my most memorable one. Like, yeah, well, yeah, I, I, mean, can, I didn't see why for better or worse. Well, I mean, you know, like to a certain extent, a teacher who is just basically saying like, you do good work is not helpful. Like no. that, that just not patting on the back. Itself. No, that, mm. that is, that's, that's really, that's really what I'm saying. I agree with you a hundred percent i mean i i think often the quality of the work is uh, tied to the level of engagement the degree to which you know a student is engaged with the work with engaged with the background knowledge of, of, of about the work just you know engaged and if if in critique or in the mentoring process others are engaged as well it, it, you know everybody everybody benefits so what what i'm saying is everybody goes into a critique saying wishing that we would say it's got a good beat uh, i can dance to it i give it a 10 that's not a good critique a, a, a good critique at, you know so the faculty would talk to a student about their work and they would say have you ever seen this did you read that and, you know and earlier some years ago i would get evaluations of those critiques from the students and they'd say you know the, the teachers are just trying to show off what they know <laughs> you know because they're like will you tell me if it's good or not and you know good is so is so relative <laughs> you know it depends who you ask it depends what year we're in <laughs> you know who knows but the main thing is like is you know you know, art is something to talk about, and how how are we talking about it, and and how passionate are we about uh, you know what we're experiencing? Okay, to bring this back to the schooling part, do you all do the standard grades? No, I, something told me you didn't. <laughs> no, written evaluations. Okay, but pass fail. Yeah, it's it's predominantly pass fail. So we we have comprehensive reviews. Don't get me wrong. Just to be clear, my master's program was pass fail. My undergraduate right. program and all the undergraduate programs I've taught in, of course, have grades, which I hate doing yeah, because yeah. No, like, I did, it's either I you make too. good work or you don't. Like there's yeah. no. 
A-level work is subjective in the arts versus like... Yeah, it's not very meaningful. Uh, You know, when I was teaching at, at Lafayette, you know, you know, the students were, you know, the faculty would call them professional students, you, you know, because they they were there to succeed at being students, right? Well, they also didn't want to graduate and pay their student loans back, so they would <laughs> continually take classes. Well, at Lafayette, they were very concerned with grades. And the first thing they would ask me is, what do I have to do to get an A? You know, they wanted me to lay out, like, right? And, and, and I said, well... You know, if I tell you, you're going to do just that, nothing else, and nothing more. And why do you want it? Why, why do you want? Why would I want that to be the outcome here? So I refused to tell them, which and they were very agitated. Oh, I recently had a student that I that got an A. I gave him a ninety-two percent, and he wanted to know what he could do to get a hundred percent. Yeah. And I'm like, you, you can't you do anything. The question. <laughs> well, but you, 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 there's nothing you can do. You, that's it. Like you, you do good work. You have the right. highest grade in the class. That's it. But you're not <laughs> perfect, so you will not get a hundred percent. I hate, I hate the entitlement of the younger generation that believe that by by just turning in work, they believe that they should receive an A for simply accomplishing the work. At the time you know, this is like 20 years ago, I spoke, I spoke to the students and, and, and there's a dark side to it because their, their sense of self, of well-being is so critically tied to those grades. But it shouldn't be in the arts. Lafayette is a liberal arts college. So mo- most of the people, you know, even the art majors are are the kind of uh, students who typically performed well academically but well no i i'm i'm with you you know i was the one like i'm not going to tell you and they were really upset so i said look if you show up if you you know do your best and i can tell when somebody's you know committed and when they're faking it you won't get lower than a B minus in this class. And I thought that was a pretty fair deal. I think that's amazingly fair. But to them, B minus was tantamount to an F. So eventually the chair of the department, you know, who also happened to be a friend of mine, uh, you know, said like, Howard, you know, you have to tell them their grades. (laughs) You have to tell them like, if they're like working at a level or b level or <laughs> oh, I, when i started teaching for me <laughs> i remember being a young teacher and when i started teaching i used to stand up i had this whole lecture that i gave the first day of club class which was basically at this moment you are all failing my class now prove to me you deserve a better grade wow you're you are the gladiator in there <laughs> i've softened in my years but but like that's how i started it and you know what the honest truth is is when i when i like made threw down the gauntlet like that on them they generally stepped up yeah well, I, you know, what, what I was describing before, you know, because a number, well, the profile of our student is typically they're transferring from one phase of life to, to, to the next. They're just like, they can't get enough. You know, they want as much as you, they're like sponges. Oh yeah. Adult learners are the best because they've made a conscious choice to put the time, energy, and money into a passion that they absolutely want to know everything about. Right. There you go. And, you know, this is not to say that the the younger students don't, aren't impacted by that either. You know, they see it and they participate. I think some of the other students were like, you, you know, this, this person is young enough to be my kid. <laughs> right. Right. So there was a little concern about that, but you know, it, it seems to me anyway, in no time, you know, they've adapted in surprisingly pleasant and mutually supportive ways. I think it's pretty fabulous. I, uh, I mean, I feel lucky to be at this school in the position that I, I am in doing uh, something that is meaningful to me and with extraordinary colleagues and students. So 
It sounds great. Yeah, it is. When I was young, I remember being at the Corcoran and we used to get the the catalog from Maine Photographic Workshop and the Anderson Ranch. Those were sort of the yes. two prominent workshop places in the world. And to this day, I still have the desire and dropping my name here, like that I would love to run workshops at both of those two places. Yeah. Well, so you, you need to make a proposal, Matthew. Well, well, that, and that's something I'm so bad at, like... <laughs> So, yeah, I'm aware that I'm fully aware because it actually, have, it, you know, now you don't have to worry about writing a syllabus, right? A description is, is a good place to start. And I'm no, I'm fully aware actually, because a friend of mine who actually was a guest on the podcast a couple episodes ago, actually used to teach at main photographic workshops. And so she actually was nice enough to tell me some of the tips about how she was able to get to running workshops there. So. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you know, we're nice people. <laughs> but, but, it's, but you all are, I mean, not, nothing personal, but like you all are very intimidating. I mean, you're, to me, maybe I'm odd, maybe I'm the norm. I don't know. But uh, the main workshops are still like the best of the best, as far as I'm concerned. That's one of the top workshop, photographic workshops in the world. Well, it, I believe that's true. <laughs> um, but, you, you know, we're also we're also pretty humble about it, and I don't think you should feel daunted by by any of that. All right, I'll write I'll write a workshop then. Okay, good. An element of our mission is that we're dedicated to lifelong learning. So, um, this is also different than you know other schools where you enter a program, you finish the program, and and you leave. We actively try to program in such a way that people can intersect with us throughout their lives. We have what we call young artist program. We have workshops that are designed for professionals, more technical and to advance their careers. Portfolio building, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, and, you know, a lot of uh, tech things. People want to be professional film editors, cinematographers, and book production. We have the book arts and and writing, you know, so MFA, certificate programs. The student I referred to earlier who, who was tr tr transitioning from photojournalism to social practice did a certificate program here like over 20 years ago. Wow. And returned. And, you know, so a, a number of students do multiple programs a lot of mfa graduates are teaching workshops you know so they come back as they come back as students and, and teachers you know some of them nice. sometimes teachers in one workshop taking so one of one of our our faculty uh in film uh you know a notable cinematographer what was he taking i i, I want to say it was a screenwriting class you know, so he's teaching he's teaching cinematography and also, you know, taking screenwriting. I mean, it's different that people are not thinking th that they're doing a program. They're they're engaging with a community and that community is available to them in, you know, many different ways throughout, throughout their, their life. lives. Yeah. Nice. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, it was nice talking to you. Get that proposal in. <laughs> I, I will actually work on that.